One of the great things about genre television and film, of our youth, or my youth anyway, was looking and marvelling at all those wonderful toys. James Bond kicked it all off with his tricked-out Aston Martin DB5, his rocket packs, his Lotus Esprit, and his watch that could undo women's dresses. After that, the floodgates were opened, as were women's dresses. On TV, Emma Peel drove the most stylish Lotus Elan, whilst John Steed went for the classier Bentley or Rolls-Royce. The Saint, Ian Ogilvy version, drove a cool-looking Jaguar XJS, and the Equalizer cemented the Jag's position as the car of the classy by driving an XJ6. With the exception of Batman, though, who not only had his Batmobile, but a Batcopter and a Batbike, and the Man from Uncle and other Bond-inspired shows of the 60s, the cars were mostly that. Cool cars. But there was more to the vehicles and gadgetry of the great and the wonderful, as we shall see as I rank the TV vehicles. I feel like I should have some kind of dramatic musical sting, though, but I don't really know anyone who can do music. I certainly would do music and not want paying for it. And I like to pay people. I like to be paid. Hmm. As usual when I do this kind of thing, I set arbitrary rules, only to break them when I see fit. The rules were simple this time. Only TV vehicles were allowed. No films. Other than that, the sky's the limit. Quite literally in some cases. Coming in at number 10. The 1975 Ford Gran Torino, a.k.a. the Striped Tomato, from Starsky and Hutch. Where is Crandall? It's only an hour late. Look, the engine's got 375 cubic inches. You just want me to drive around in a striped tomato like you got. My car's a striped what? you yeah you know my uncle al right right you drive that red tomato with the white stripe uh red torino uh, tomato tomato what's the difference come on hey you want a real psychic prediction a tomato a big red tomato red uh white stripes uh wheels rubber wheels mags I don't think we should have taken my car. Striped tomato? Driving around in that is about as discreet as riding on a homecoming float. At least. What are you so salty about? I never should have let you talk me into taking this car. There's no connect to headquarters. Gotta chase those kids. What are we gonna do in this thing? Man, do you think your red tomato driven by some white-faced dude won't stick out in the ghetto like some... Some what? Some red tomato driven by some white-faced dude. What? Those are my brand new recaps. You know what I paid for these stuff? Probably more than all cars worth. Yeah, well, at least I don't drive around a striped tomato. You gotta tune up every time you drive around a block. The striped tomato, tomato, or Torino, as Starsky would have it, 
is here more for its iconic status and its place in my nostalgia fueled childhood than anything else. I was far too young to be watching Starsky and Hutch in first run, but watch it I did, every Saturday night at 9.30 on BBC One. Starsky and Hutch was a genuine TV phenomenon, causing real-life police officers to start driving like Dave Starsky and the rest of us to start dressing like him. Whilst the popularity of the show was, of course, down to the chemistry and good looks of the series' stars, Paul Michael Glazer as Dave Starsky and David Soule as Ken Hutchinson, the other part of the appeal was undoubtedly the car. Even famous Torino hater Glazer had to finally admit to the popularity of the vehicle, despite him spending the entire run of the series trying to wreck it. Originally, series creator William Blinn wanted a green Corvette as Starsky's car, but like many Hollywood prop cars, the striped tomato was chosen through Ford's studio TV car loan programme. Two red box stock V8-powered two-door Torinos were decked out with the Nike white stripe and further modified for stunt purposes. Mag wheels, oversized tyres and Urshocks were all added. As the show gained popularity, Ford decided to cash in and ordered a limited production of a similar car, costing $4,467 for the standard fur and $5,351 with all optional equipment, meaning you could buy your own tricked-out Torino whilst the show was in production. This also added to the appeal. You could go out and buy a Trans Am, sure, but it'd never be kit. Here, you could actually drive the same car as your TV heroes. The Torino's ranking at number 10 also reflects that apparently this car is a burr to drive. Heavy, cumbersome and thoroughly unsubtle, the series never did answer the question as why two plainclothes cops would drive something so conspicuous. But hey, it's TV. And on TV, the Torino, with its lifted mag wheels, squealing brakes and Nike stripe, looked too damn cool. Number 9. Stingray. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. Anything can happen in the next half hour. From the urban landscapes of LA to the underwater canyons of the deep, you can keep your sea quest in your sea view. There's only one submarine for me. Stingray. Not the Corvette Stingray of that Stephen J. Canal show that lasted about 20 episodes. This is the Jerry Anderson version of Stingray. And it's fair to say that of all of Jerry Anderson's shows, which had ultra-cool vehicles... And this was really a hard choice between Captain Scarlet's car, Ed Straker's car, the UFO and various others. But ultimately, Stingray wins out. 
For one, Stingray looks cool. A big plus for tween me. It's a sleek and svelte design with a rounded nose, nice curves and a small engine turbine at the back propelling her through the sea. Stingray was a nuclear-powered combat submarine designed to police the Earth's oceans in the mid-2060s. Armed with Sting missile torpedoes, she can travel at up to 960 miles per hour, or 600 knots, and reach depths of over 36,000 feet, 6.8 miles. But those are the stats. What Stingray really wins is making an underwater vehicle look cool as hell. Let's be honest, the Sequest from Sequest DSV was a ponderous vehicle. Slow moving and unimpressive. So was the sea view from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Even classics like Run Silent, Run Deep never made the underwater battles exciting. They were all about the tension. Kids don't care about tension. Kids want fast moving and explosions. Hell, I'm an adult and I want fast moving and explosions. And there was nothing faster than Stingray. Anything could happen in the next half hour, intoned the opening credits announcer. And, as accompanied by the superb special effects work of the Anderson team, Stingray sank beneath the waves of its undersea haven before zooming out of its launch tube and swooping around the ocean depths. Underwater has never looked so cool. Glorious stuff. Number 8. 1969-1973 through 1973 Dodge Charger. The Dukes of Hazard and Burn Notice. Figuring out if a car is tailing you is mostly about driving like you're an idiot. You speed up, slow down, signal one way, turn the other. Of course, ideally, you're doing this without your mother in the car. Michael, where are you going? The hospital is on 20. Actually, losing a tail isn't about driving fast. A high-speed pursuit is just going to land you on the 6 o'clock news. So you just keep driving like an idiot until the other guy makes a mistake. I was first introduced to the 1969 Dodge Charger via the Dukes of Hazard, and it is, to this day, my favourite of that late 60s, early 70s era of muscle car. It has been noted that cars have faces, and if that is indeed the case, and I think it's true, then the Charger has a face that says, screw you, kid. The mightiest of the muscle cars, the Charger looks mean, even with the garish Dukes colour scheme. It's long, sleek and powerful, sporting a V8 engine and a roar that just won't quit. Even without these spectacular stunts employed on Dukes, the Charger still looks like it would chew up and spit out the 68 Ford Mustang before breakfast. The Charger has proved a popular vehicle of choice in movies and film, so I was delighted when, in Burn Notice, series lead Michael Weston inherits his dead father's car, a 1973 Dodge Charger. To the uninitiated and the naked eye, there's not a lot of difference between Weston's Charger and the Dukes, but I'm sorry, I have to give the edge to Westons for its sleek and stylish but oh-so-classic colour scheme. With its black lines and classy white leather interior, it's a cut above. Sure, it needed air conditioning installed. Got warm in Miami. But also doesn't have that crappy engine sticking out the bonnet like Dom's in The Fast and the Furious. A clear sign of inadequacy if I ever saw one. Westin's Charger couldn't pull off the same level of ridiculous stunt work that the Duke's Charger did, but it looked as impressive screeching around the streets of Miami as the General did burning up Hazard. Ultimately, though, if I could only own one vehicle from this list, it'd be a Charger. Number 7. The 1955 Lincoln Futura concept car, a.k.a. the Batmobile, from 1966's Batman. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Here, ready to move out. Oh, 
Over the years, the Dark Knights have many different Batmobiles. Some, like the one from the 1989 Tim Burton film, are notable in their own right. Others, like the Bat-Tank from 2005's Batman Begins, bring something new and different to the table. Only one Batmobile, though, is truly iconic. The model that appeared in the 1966 TV show and feature film starring Adam West and Burt Ward. The TV Batmobile is a masterpiece of design work and really is form over substance. The original basis for the Batmobile was a concept car built by Ford as a prototype for the car of the future. Don't tell Kit. After an appearance in 1959's It Started With A Kiss, starring Debbie Reynolds and Glenn Ford, master car customiser George Barris bought the car for the princely sum of $1. But, unable to insure the car for use, it sat languishing at the back of his North Hollywood store until the Batman came a-calling. Barris only got the job to design the Batmobile for an upcoming TV adaptation of the comic book favourite after Dean Jeffries turned the gig down, citing three weeks as being too tight a deadline. Barris immediately seized upon the Futura's bat-like appearance to give him a head start, and he had a small team working around the clock to meet the production's demands. The rest, as they say, is history. That $1 investment sold for $4.2 million in 2013. As the Futura is a one-off, any other Batmobiles were based on the Ford Galaxy. But, with the exception of one appearance in the episode The Contaminated Cowl, only the Futura appeared in the show, replete with passenger door dent in the episode Penguin is a Girl's Best Friend. The Batmobile is the epitome of TV cool. And even though Batman has other vehicles in his arsenal, such as the Batboat, the Batcycle, the Batcopter, whatever, it's the car, right? Chicks dig the car. Number six, the Cody Coyote X from 1983's Hardcastle and McCormick. the 1980s you couldn't switch on the telly box without coming across yet another Stephen J. Cannell show, all of which had a similar look and feel. One that stood out from the crowd was Hardcastle and McCormick. 
although little remembered today. Hardcastle and McCormick ran for three seasons from 1983 and starred Brian Keith as retired Judge Milton C. Hardcastle and Daniel Hugh Kelly as race car driver and occasional thief Skid Mark McCormick. Hardcastle took McCormick into his custody and the two of them started to systematically take down over 200 scumbags that have walked out of Hardcastle's courtroom on a technicality. Hardcastle and McCormick, like a lot of Cannell shows, was a character piece, centering around crusty old conservative Hardcastle's relationship with the more liberal and looser McCormick. But over the series, both men developed a bond, with McCormick becoming Hardcastle's surrogate son. The centrepiece, though, was the car. In the show, the Cody Coyote X was a one-of-a-kind sports car, a sleek red number designed for high-powered racing. In reality, the car was a custom mould based on a heavily redesigned McLaren M6 GT. Modified and assembled by Mike Fennell, the car used a chassis from a Volkswagen Beetle and an engine from a Porsche 914. There was nothing particularly futuristic about the Coyote, but my god it looked fantastic. Being a kit car, it wasn't particularly sturdy, and chunks would fly off it whenever it did a stunt, most notably the newly applied headlight covers, but it's still one of the sleekest and most unique cars to ever hit the airwaves. Sadly, actor Brian Keith struggled with the Coyote design throughout the first season, particularly getting in and out of the damn thing. The Coyote was subsequently redesigned to less than spectacular effect for the second and third season, and was now based upon a DeLorean DMC-12. The second version of the car is not sleek, nor as aesthetically pleasing as the first, and it lost a little of its appeal. Still, in its prime, the Cody Coyote was one for the books, looking like nothing else around, then or now. Number 5. The Eagle, from 1974's Space 1999. Hey, Jerry Anderson's criminally underrated Space 1999 took its cues from real-life space exploration and Stanley Kubrick movies, rather than World War II dogfights or Kurosawa flicks. As such, the hardware in the show had a more realistic bent to it than the vehicles seen in other science fiction properties like the X-Wing Fighter or Buck Rogers Starfighter. Despite being 46 years old, the Eagle still looks like NASA could have built it yesterday. It's not as sleek as the Viper, not as fast-moving as the Millennium Falcon, and doesn't possess a small country's destroying worth of armament like the Battlestar Galactica, but what it lacks in wish fulfilment, it more than makes up for in practicality. The Eagle is used by the inhabitants of Moonbase Alpha for travel between the Earth and the Moon, and for transportation to the many alien worlds they run into on their journey. Capable of operating in space and in a planetary atmosphere, the Eagle is an adult spacecraft. After you've got over your muscle car phase of, say, the Falcon or the Viper, you'd ease yourself into the family transporter. And that's the Eagle. Its domed nose, main body, which can be swapped out for rescue or transportation pods, and its amazing durability all make it a great space vehicle. After all, it survives more crashes than Damon Hill. The Eagle is a wonderfully realistic and convincing design, and still capable of being awesome today. More majestic than cool... It's the more mature choice. Number four, the Type 40 TT capsule, or TARDIS, Time and Relative Dimension in Space, from the BBC's Doctor Who.
Why is that phone box? Sorry, what? On the outside, it said police box. Why have you labelled a time machine police box? Why not time machine? Is that too obvious? And what is a police box? The policemen come in in boxes. How many to get? Are you a policeman? No. Look at your hair. Actually, just look at your hair. Do you ever look at your hair and think, well, it just won't stop in my chin. Look, I'm wearing a bow tie. Ship me now. Am I gambling? A bit, yeah. Question stands. Which question? Yes. Well, it's not really a police box, which, by the way, is a special kind of telephone box that policemen used to use. Right. Telephone box. There's a light on the top. Do you need to change the bulb? Maybe. Stop. Breath. Hmm? Why doesn't the air get out? It's made of wood. Oh, you've got a wooden time machine. Do you feel stupid? Sorry, back on the board, I. It's camouflage. It's disguised as a police telephone box from 1963. Every time the TARDIS materialises in a new location, within the first nanosecond of landing, it analyses its surroundings, calculates a 12-dimensional data map of everything within a thousand-mile radius, and determines which outer shell would blend in best with the environment. And then it disguises itself as a police telephone box from 1963. Oh, why? It's probably a bit of a fault, actually. I I I've been meaning to check. What, it's a police box every time? Yeah, I suppose, now you mention. How long's it been doing that? Oh, not long. Okay. Okay, but what about the windows? There are windows on the outside. Where do they go? Is it a cry for help? What? The bow tie. Ah. Bow ties are cool. And you're an alien. Yeah. Well, in your terms, yeah. In my terms, you're an alien. In quite a few people's terms, probably. What kind of alien? Well, you know, a nice one. Definitely one of the nice ones. So you're like a, a space squid? or something. Why are you like a tiny little slug in a human suit? Is that why you walk like that? Amy, this is me. This is what I really look like. Well, that's fine then. Ow! Good! Okay. Yeah, I think I'm done now. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Pond. You've barely started. Cats, do you know what I keep in here? Absolutely everything. Anything take your fancy? We're in space. Yeah, that's space. But it can't be. But it is. But it's like, it's like, it's like. Special effects. Like what? It's still, isn't it? It's not real. Get out. What? No, seriously. Get out! <laughs> Famous for being bigger on the inside, or smaller on the outside, whichever you prefer, the Doctor's Type 40 TT capsule, or TARDIS, can travel anywhere and anywhere. All of time and space, everything that ever was or ever will be. Where do you want to go? Stolen by the Doctor when Time Lord society became too confining, the Doctor wanders time and space in a blue police box, finding injustice and fixing it, all in time for tea. Of course, the TARDIS isn't supposed to be a blue police box. It's supposed to change its outward appearance to something more inconspicuous, depending on where it lands. The Doctor's TARDIS is a tad temperamental, though, and got stuck as a police box when it landed on Earth in 1963, or thereabouts. 
We're not really sure how long the Doctor and his granddaughter were on Earth for, but there were 653 police boxes on the streets of London back then, so the TARDIS will have been relatively inconspicuous. Since then, the Doctor has tried to fix the chameleon circuit, the device that alters the outward appearance of the vessel a few times, but never really liked the results, having got attached to the anachronistic blue box. The exact dimensions of the TARDIS have never really been mapped, but she can jettison sections of herself whenever she gets too large, and even change her internal appearance when she gets bored. And the TARDIS is a girl. Mostly. There's a large wardrobe, a swimming pool, a library, and plenty of bedrooms, but the control room is where the action is. In real life, the police box is a bygone relic of a long-gone age. After all, what need have we for a police call box when we all have mobile phones? And in fact, most people only know it nowadays as the Doctor's TARDIS. However, it's fun to catch sight of the old girl in an old movie or TV show and pretend the Doctor is around somewhere, getting into bother. There are even still eight of them dotted around the UK if you want to see one in the wild. There's something quite apt about a show that started as a historical drama and teachable moment, keeping something so outdated in the public eye. As a vehicle, though, the TARDIS can take you anywhere you can imagine, and quite a few places you can't. Number three, The Viper Mark II, Battlestar Galactica 1978 and 2003. Your wing ready, Jolly? Ready, sir. Boomer? Ready, Captain. Let's go. Any vehicle on this list is the spaceship equivalent of a muscle car, it's the Viper. Sleek and well-balanced, either version, be it the slightly longer, newer equivalent from the reimagined show or the snub-nosed original, the Viper works on pure power. Which is fortunate, as its main method of turbo propulsion wouldn't even work in space. Nevertheless, the Viper looks cool. It has massive engines at the back that give it the kind of turbo thrust that pins you back in your seat. It's highly manoeuvrable and, thanks to its wings, can operate in and out of an atmosphere. I actually prefer the Viper to its forebear, the X-Wing fighter from Star Wars. Sure, the Viper hasn't become as iconic with the masses, but it's sleeker, faster, heavily armed and looks quite comfortable and easy to handle. In real life, apparently, it would be a brick. But this isn't real. This is fantasy. There are so many great images of the Viper rattling around in my brain, from how great it looks zooming out of the launch tubes, to its battle rolls and firepower, to its speed and sleekness. The Viper is the fighter jet of choice for the space cowboy. Coming in at number two, Kit. The 1982 Pontiac Trans Am from Knight Rider. Knight Rider. You always want to say it like that, don't you? Knight Rider. Shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. What is a shadowy flight? I don't think I ever figured that out. Silicon Valley, 110 miles. All right. Might as well put on some music. 
All these weird gadgets, you'd think they'd give you a radio. What would you like to hear? What the hell was that? Do you wish further information on Silicon Valley? Hell no, I want to know who you are and how you're listening in. There's no reason for increased volume. I am scanning your interrogatives quite satisfactorily. I am the voice of Night Industry 2000's microprocessor. K-I-T-T for easy reference. A kit if you prefer. No, I don't prefer. And what's more, I don't intend to drive around in a car that talks back to me. So either Devin pulls your plug or you get yourself another driver. I am not qualified to overrule your wishes. Well, that's real good to hear, Kit. Because I don't want to hear another peep out of you until I can get a call off the Devons. So clam up. I'm going to listen to some good music and don't offer any suggestions. I'll choose my own. As you wish, Mr. Knight. But since you are still recovering from your ordeal and I detect we're in a slightly irritable mood caused by fatigue, may I suggest you put the car in the autocruise mode for safety's sake? No, you may not. And that's final. Good night. Good night. I can't believe this. A car that talks back to me. Anyway, Kit is awesome. Arguably, it's the best-looking car on the list and the best-looking car on TV. Taking a stock 1982 Trans Am, adding some extra bits to the hood, including that really cool scanner eye at the front, altered the whole look of the car, making it sleeker than the original. Add the shiny black classic finish, and you ended up with a car that looked good from any angle. But there's more to Kit, the Night Industries 2000, than good looks. Kit is a sentient AI, capable of learning, feeling and expressing emotion. There are many episodes where Kit is the most human character on the show. Who can forget the feeling of helplessness when Kit was taken out by a massive truck? Or when he was eaten alive by toxic waste? Many of Kit's functions have become commonplace today, but really enhanced the car of the future in 1982. Kit, like many modern vehicles, doesn't run on regular gasoline, but a cleaner equivalent. Like many vehicles, he has access to numerous maps for satellite navigation, hands-free communication, speed modes and sensors. But he tells you a lot more than when you've left the boot open or haven't put your seatbelt on. Voiced by William Daniels, Kit's soothing tones, be he claiming that they're getting away, Michael, or it's a long shot, go a long way to making Kit every boy's favourite. Certainly in comparison to his evil counterpart, Carr, voiced by Peter Cullen, Kit's a dream. And that's before we even get to the Turbo Boost, Kit's most fanciful yet coolest creation. Hidden jets allow Kit to leap over caverns, rivers and other cars whilst allowing a soft landing for the passenger, normally Michael Knight, as played by David Hasselhoff. Kit gave both Hasselhoff and the Trans Am a kind of immortality some actors can only dream of. Kit still has power and presence today. Witness any time he appears at a car show, convention, or even drives down the street in one of the many fan-made replicas. People stop and stir. People who weren't even born when the show was originally on the earth stand up and take notice. That's the kind of brand recognition Hollywood wet dreams are made of. It's also why none of the numerous reboots have worked. Whilst the show may have been cheesy, simplistic action for the car is a classic. And you can't improve on a classic. Number one. Airwolf. 1984. 
How fast is that bird? We don't know yet. So far, it's only slightly exceeded the speed of sound. No helicopter can fly faster than sound. Airwolf can, basically. Airwolf is an aerodynamic lifting body with a twin turbine-driven rotor system, capable of propelling it to 300 knots. In other words, it's a fast twin-engine jet chopper. One can express it in those terms, except this jet chopper can disengage its rotor system and ignite these two additional turbines. 9.6 seconds after ignition, Airwolf can exceed Mach 1 from sea level to 65,000 feet. The crew consists of an in-flight system specialist in the Electronic Data Command Center to monitor turbine temperatures, fuel and lubricant pressure, rotor synchronization, all onboard flight systems. The second crewman is a countermeasure specialist. His primary MOS is to suppress, neutralize, or destroy any weapons threatening the integrity of Airwolf. He also has a duplicate flight system control in case the aircraft commander becomes incapacitated. And finally, the aircraft commander, who's responsible for positive flight control, target acquisition, and weapon system selection. The latter offers him 14 firepower options, ranging from 30-millimeter cannons to nuclear-tipped Shrike missiles. In other words, Senator, Airwolf is a Mach 1 Plus chopper that can kick butt. Of course. There was never any doubt. The lady, the ultimate television vehicle, sleek, classy, stunning, a veritable wolf in sheep's clothing. Erwolf was a Mark I Plus attack helicopter that, with its armament in check, looked like any other. But with weapons drawn, was a force to be reckoned with. Designed by Andy Probert, Erwolf was based around a Bell 222 twin-engined light helicopter and was owned by Jetcopters Inc. during the run of the show. But it's Probert's hand that made Erwolf stand apart from its closest rival, Blue Thunder. Probert's brief was to make Erwolf look like a small, deadly wasp, so he added a nose cone, side intake valves, and a simple yet elegant black colour scheme with a white undercarriage. He then sketched out the armaments, including the chain guns, ADF pod and two rocket launchers, designed to hinge out into the firing position. The latter was rejected due to health and safety difficulties caused by cutting into the actual helicopter, as the others were just bolted into place, and only seen emerging from the stealth compartments on the miniatures. Probert also designed the arm patches and logo, the flight suits and helmets, all of which added a lovely verisimilitude to Erwolf. Despite the many add-ons, though, Erwolf's pilots said they actually added to the flight experience, compensating for drag and making the Bell 222, a notoriously difficult bird, easier to fly. But who cares about any of that? Just look at her. Look as she hoves into view from behind the sand pile in the opening credits. Look at how she drops the nose and then screams as she burrs down on you. Look at her rise up from the hollow cave where she's been hidden by her test pilot, Stringfellow Hawk. Look at her fly off into the sunset at the end of various episodes. Look at the quality stunt work as she banks, swoops and blows bad guys out of the sky. Then, dump Sylvester Levy's classic synth orchestral score hybrid and the sound effects over her. Erwolf growls at you. She sneers. She treats you with utter contempt. And we love her all the more because of it. Erwolf is the bad girl your mum warned you about. She'll leave you heartbroken and crushed, but she'll be the best damn ride of your life. 
unsurpassed, never to be surpassed. The design, the music, the photography, the sound effects, the interior, all that ultra-high-tech glistening lights, form and function coming together in a wonderful whole. The lady in flight. Fuck you, Blue Thunder. You're not fit to clean her undercarriage. it. My favourite TV vehicles. Yours would probably be a completely different list. Tell me what they are. I'd always like to hear them. There are others just bubbling under. Street Hawk, another Andy Probert design, is pretty damn cool. Captain Scarlet's Angel Interceptors are awesome. Jim Rockford's Trans Am is a nice looking car, as is Thomas Magnum's Ferrari 308 GTS. Over here, the professionals had a nice line in Ford Capris, and Del Boy's three-wheel reliant Robin is an iconic TV vehicle. And let's not forget Gene Hunt's request to fire up the Quattro in Ashes to Ashes. Space-wise, Blake's Liberator is a lovely design, and both the Red Dwarf and Starbug have things going for them. But hey... That's the joy of rankings. Like opinions and assholes, 
Everybody's got one. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I like Superman. Like, a lot. Like, he's my favorite character. I like him so much that I have podcasted about the Man of Steel more than any other character. Back in 2017, I started a show called It All Comes Back to Superman, to serve as the monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith. Well, the monthly thing hasn't worked out, but I'm hoping to change that in 2020. This year, there will be at least one episode a month of the show, and most of those will be part of a series I'm calling Superman is for Everybody. Superman is for Everybody springs from my desire to talk to people that have channeled their love and affection for the character into other avenues, like cosplay, or podcasting, or academia. New episodes will drop in the first or second week of the month, with special episodes popping up at random, because that's how I roll, apparently. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of BaileyTube podcasting network, which can be found at www.fortressofbaileytube.com. The show is available through Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and it's even on Spotify. It all comes back to Superman. Because really, it does. Give me a few minutes and I'll make the connection. Why are you walking away? I'm not done talking to you yet. That's the end of Mike's trailer being recorded back into the microphone as I as it plays. It's- very strange. Anyway, this part of the show almost very nearly didn't exist because no one had emailed in. Can't do a feedback section if there's no feedback. And that denies you ten more minutes in my illustrious company. Some of you may prefer to spend that ten minutes doing something else. I don't know. But you've emailed in. Or two people emailed in at the last possible moment. Literally. As I was putting this episode to bed, and I was just getting the microphone out to say, look, there's no no feedback, so what do you want me to do? Bye. Two people emailed in. The first of those people, for which many thanks, is Michael Peacock. You put the super in a Superman story. I do. I really do. Hello, Michael. Greetings, Andrew. I should get the introduction out of the way by stating I'm a first-time writer but long-time listener to the Palace of Glittering Delights. Well, what's kept you? You know, I'm, I'm reasonably nice. I don't take the piss out of everyone that emails in. Only most people. Your show is like one of those vending machines at a supermarket that gives away stickers or little toys. Except for each, per- except for each purchase, we get a certified great result. I could be like one of those things in Toy Story, one of those things with the hook. Ooh, the claw! And I'm like Buzz Lightyear. Instead of one of those shitty green army men that no one gives a toss about. Michael continues, there are so many things I could talk about from binging episodes of yours, so I'll get to the quick ones and get them out of the way before I hit to the heart of the matter. Horror of Fang Rock was a Doctor Who story I covered a long time ago on a podcast called Hamicus with a friend of mine. I'm always partial to Baker Doctor stories, and this one was really awesome for the atmosphere. The best part of ranking lists are the differences. Case in point for your Marvel DC crossover list. For me, it all comes back to that first Superman-Spider-Man crossover. John Buscema indeed did a great job on the second book, but that panoramic Ross Andrew Dick Giordano artwork gave us the spectacle we needed. Yes, yeah, it did. And it's it's more a case of, in that particular instance, I do think the story's better. I do think the story in the second one is better than the first one. But the, f- the second one 
was the first one I ever read. It was the one I had. You know, I don't know if I was even aware that there was a first one at the time I picked the second one up. So there was that thrill of the, there's a Spider-Man, Superman team up thing. I only, I think I only discovered that there was a first one many, many years after I discovered the second one. So there's that element of it as well. But there is no denying that the splash page, especially in the Treasury Edition, of Superman meeting Spider-Man for the very first time is, is undeniably epic. No problems with Whittaker's Doctor, continues Michael. But then again, while 40 on the button is an old fogey range, I should hope not. I've just personally found it hard to get into Doctor Who from the 2005 reboot onwards. Any Doctor. Don't know what it is, but it just hasn't sunk in with me. And finally, I want to give you massive props for covering who put the super in Superman. Or who took the super out of Superman, I think is the title. But that's just been pedantic, isn't it? The Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magin period of Superman were some of the best jewels to find in the Bronze Age for the character's life. And this story was an example of it. Sure, Julia Swatch was always quick to make sure that after an action or Superman story block wrapped, it was back to the status quo for the next issue. Cue that practical joke scene with Steve Lombard. But these two writers were doing their level best to give the Man of Steel a bit of a spark after spending the 50s and 60s being the lesson teacher to his friends and undergoing bizarre transformations. Michael Bailey wrote a great blog post about Bendis' removal of Superman's Clark Kent identity. You made a great audio commentary for it too. Aside from the fact that a lot of Bendis' annoying Marvel traits have started bleeding into his DC work from the onset, this creative change proves to me that any spark I had in wanting to see BMB's work has just passed. He may be one hell of a nice guy, might do wonders for the comics industry, but as a creative driver who wants to eliminate a key element to a superhero's existence, it makes me just want to follow, stop following his direction. Yeah, there's, it's a weird thing in it with deconstructionism. It's like the Inglorious Trexpert podcast, which is a great podcast if you're into Star Trek, recently talked about Gene Roddenberry's memos for Star Trek 3. Now for years, Harv Bennett, who was the producer of Star Trek 3, who wrote Star Trek 3, has been dismissing Roddenberry's memos as, as the rantings of, of a man past his prime. The Unglorious Trexpert read some of those memos and actually said, no, he made some very, very good points about some of the story shortcomings of Star Trek 3, which obviously Bennett, having written it, didn't want to hear. And Gene concluded one of the memos with the story that, you know, if you've got a bird, you can pluck a couple of feathers out of that bird. And it will still fly. And maybe you can pluck a, a couple more feathers out of that bird. And it will still fly. But eventually you will pluck the key feather out of the bird. And it can no longer fly. So then is it that bird anymore? And the point that he was making, I think, was the same of deconstruction, a vision, is vision, deconstructionist. Whatever the word is, the deconstructionist, deconstructionist nature of writers like Brian Michael Bendis is that you can age Superman up a bit, and you can have him reveal his identity to Lois, and you can have them get married, and you can have them have a child, and then you can reveal his identity to the world, but then is that the feather that stops the bird from flying? Is that the step too far that stops it being Superman anymore? 
And it's the same with Spider-Man. You can have him leave high school. You can have him graduate college. You can kill his girlfriend. You can age him up. You can have him marry Mary Jane. You can have him have kids. You can reveal his identity to the world. But the cumulative effect of all of these during new directions is it's not that character anymore. And in a, in a continuous narrative that ultimately has a conclusion... All those changes are fine, because like we saw in Robert Kirkman's Invincible, eventually you will get to the point where you've all these changes mean it's not that story anymore, so the story ends. And Kirkman chose to end the, the comic, very wisely, in my opinion. And he's just done the same with The Walking Dead. But with Superman and Spider-Man, you can't do that. You're currently, constantly, sorry, in what Michael Bailey's called that second act. And while that's slightly infuriating... For people of our vintage, I am also in my 40s, Michael. For people of our vintage, then maybe the problem isn't with the, the, the work itself. Maybe the problem's with us. And maybe it's our time to just move on. To just accept that they're not writing Amazing Spider-Man for me anymore. The, the whole rebooting it back to him being young and stupid. Young, dumb and full of cum. And not married anymore. Even though I'm not a particular fan of the marriage. Because of how they did it. Not necessarily the marriage itself. I always have to make that distinction. I'm not a marriage hater. I wasn't a fan of how they did it. And then how they subsequently wrote it. But I don't think Spider-Man's really been any good for the past decade. There's been bright spots in it. But for the most part... No, it's just not interesting to me. And therefore, it's it's time to find something else. So my head canon goes from the gathering of the five didn't happen how we saw it happened, because it's very easy to, to have that in your head canon because of the nature of that story. And it leads into Spider-Girl. And Spider-Girl is my legitimate through line for Peter Parker. And it's the same with Superman. Is this is this the feather that stops it being Superman anymore? I don't know. Only time will tell. But it seems to me that that's Bendis' stock in trade. Bendis has said in many, 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 many interviews when he was doing Ultimate Spider-Man, um, he doesn't believe secret identities would work in the real world. You'd, you'd be stressed. The the danger apparent in it and the fact that your relatives would recognise you and you wouldn't be able to do it with modern-day surveillance. And even going back, you can go back and listen to old Hey Kids comics if you wish, because I'm sure... Even going back as early as the early days of Hey Kids, I was saying about Bendis, well, if you don't think the secret identity is an important part of superhero comics, then maybe you shouldn't be writing superhero comics. Because it is. There are certain characters for whom the secret identity is an empirical part of the strip. Spider-Man being one of them. Superman being one of them. Batman being one of them. There are characters for whom you can get rid of the secret identity and it doesn't matter a blind jot. Like, Captain America always seemed to have a nebulous relationship with a secret identity. He didn't go out of his way to say he was Captain America, but there were certain people in the know who knew Steve Rogers was Captain America. But he still had a private life. And Iron Man, you know, as the movies have proved, you know, Tony Stark doesn't really need a secret identity. Thor doesn't need a secret identity. And it's my concern with the, the upcoming Spider-Man movies from this point. Having revealed his secret identity, what are they going to do about that? Because I think that's a, an in, empirical part of the strip. And I honestly think if you can't get behind that with certain characters, then you shouldn't be writing those characters. And part, it's part of the fun. Surely it's part of the fun of, you know, whip your glasses off, rip your shirt open and you're Superman. It's part of the wish fulfillment of it. And it also comes back into the ageing up of the readership. You know, suddenly we are, we are only too aware as we get older that you couldn't live a double life. I can barely keep control of the life I'm in. 
so you couldn't live a double life. Um, but, you know, primarily these weren't written for 40-somethings and older. We can enjoy them if we can buy into them. And I, I, I don't know what I think about it anymore. I've completely changed my opinion in the sense that I used to think they should just be trapped in amber forever. Leave, Peter Parker leaving high school was a mistake. But Bendis kept him in high school. I didn't like Ultimate Spider-Man much either. But I think that's mainly down to, to Bendis's writing style, personally. And the whole... Do you know what I did find distasteful about it? Him and Bagley. I love Mark Bagley, don't get me wrong. But him and Mark Bagley patting themselves on the back for having reached 107 episodes of Ultimate Spider-Man and matched Stanley and Jack Kirby's run on the Fantastic Four. And the only way it matched it was in, was in numerical numbers that they'd produced. In terms of stories, ideas, concepts, they'd no way have come close to matching just the sheer visceral nature of Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four. And Bendis has, has one go-to, reveal the identity. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much his go-to. And it was one of the things that I thought when he got Superman, and he, he said all the right things at the start, no, I'm not going to do that. And clearly he was lying. Now, I don't mind people lying to protect their story, but this just feels, what's it? And, I, you know, it just feels wrong. It just feels like it's not going to work. But, hey, you know, only time will tell. And I'm not reading the books anymore. So who am I to say? You know, the people who are reading them, maybe you're loving it. I don't know. Anyway, that's about all I have for the moment, For says Michael. Sorry, I interrupted your email. You'll probably hear back from me when I play added catch-up. Here's a hint. I cannot wait to hear your Superman 4 episode. I had a lot of fun with that. Me and Mike enjoyed that. But may everything be okay for you and your family and keep up the excellent work sincerely. Michael Peacock. P.S. Plug time. Can't forget, I do host Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com. Even if you don't enjoy the subject matter, listen to it as a so bad it's acceptable audio experience. I'm sure it's great, Michael. I had not heard of that show before, but uh, I'm more than, if you've got a promo, send it my way, and I am more than happy to include it in the show. And the second email that arrived just as I was putting this to bed on the 20th of the 1st, 2020. There you go, that's, that's telling you when I recorded this. Professor Allen. Hey, Professor Allen. Andy. I do not have specific points on specific episodes, but I just wanted to tell you this has become one of my consistently favourite shows. I particularly enjoy the Spider-Man shows, but comics, TV, movies, whatever. If you're talking about it, I'm going to listen. Keep up the good work, Professor Allen, of the relatively geeky podcast network, Darkness to Light. My, uh, and Allen has one of the silkiest voices on the radio. And that's the dog getting all excited, so I'll wrap this up in a minute. But thank you. That that really does mean a lot. Um, the Spider-Man stuff... Maybe I should have done the Spider-Man stuff as a separate podcast. Maybe I should release it on its own feed when we, we finally get the new website sorted out. Because um, I don't think that quite gets the attention... That it deserves, he said, his ego burly fitting through the door. Because, you know, I've covered a lot on that. I've gone from the beginning and I'm, I'm rapidly approaching issue 100. But um, thank you to everyone who says nice things about the Spider-Man ones. They are labours of love because I, I adore Spider-Man. And as I recently discussed with Ryan Daly when I appeared on For Your, Find Your Joy over on the Fire and Water Network, where we covered Criminal, go and listen to that because I have a good time talking to Ryan. I've not decided what to do next. I'm considering knocking it on the head when Stan Lee leaves, and then maybe jumping up over to Roger Stern, because a lot of the Jerry Conway stuff we covered on Hey Kids, 
and I've already covered the Marv Wolfman run. It's not great. The Len Wein run has moments. Maybe I should just cover like individual issues. Maybe the Green Goblin story. That may be fun to cover the Len Wein Green Goblin story and then jump straight over to Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, and do Roger Stone stuff. If you have a thought on that, let me know. Let me know if there's a particular area you'd want me to cover. Uh, I do want to get to Michelini McFarlane eventually, because I've never covered that in a consecutive run. I've touched on it hither and yon, but um, I think that would be fun to touch upon as well. Anyway, that's it. Those are the only two emails I got, just in the nick of time. Thank you very much, Alan and Michael, for emailing in, because you saved this section from being 10 minutes of me moaning that I didn't have any emails. <laughs> all right, I'll see you all next time. Uh, I have no idea what it's going to be, because I've not got there yet. Again, a couple of ideas brewing, but nothing uh, nothing has been planned. Uh, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, and I will see you all next time. If you want to email in, because that would be much appreciated, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the current email address. Our new website, when we have it up and running, will have individual email addresses for each show. And I will let you know what that is when I know. Take care, everybody, and I'll see you all again real soon. Goodbye. Thank you.